0: This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to The Health Report with me, Tegan Taylor, coming to you from Jagger and Turable Land.
1: And me, Norman Swan, coming to you from Gadigal Land.
0: Last year, the world officially said farewell to Queen Elizabeth II. Once upon a time, the death of a monarch might trigger family feuds, wars and
1: revolutions. In that light, we revisited some royal personages and their ailments, especially the less recent medical history of the British monarchy.
0: And the first of our guides is a historian of the body, Professor Elizabeth Hurran.
2: When you study the history of the body, you're very much interested in those things that we still share today, for example, in the history of emotions but those things that also perhaps we don't share. Disease profiles were different in the past. Today we have clean drinking water. So we're interested in both continuities and changes. And the royal family are particularly interesting in that way, of course, because as well as being important symbols of the governance of our nations, they are also human beings. And the way that they react to things is often the way that we do too. So they're closer to us than we think in medical terms.
1: Even so, I was particularly keen to know from Elizabeth Huron whether there was a pattern to royal deaths and diseases.
2: Some members of the royal family have been fortunate to have long lives. Probably the most recent would have been the Queen's grandfather, George V, who, like her, was long-lived, Queen Victoria, who famously, of course, lived until 1901. Other monarchs, the role of monarch has taken its toll mentally. For some people, it's been quite a heavy toll. The Queen's father, actually, was an example of that. He had to manage the abdication crisis. He was never meant to be king. And it was a big psychological burden, actually, for him. He will eventually die from lung disease because he smoked quite a lot. But there's no doubt that he was a man who had a significant amount of added stress suddenly placed upon him. It was always felt, particularly by the Queen Mother, that that stress added to his early death. They certainly had and always have had the best medical care, though that doesn't necessarily mean that you get the best doctoring, actually, because one of the things that historically we know is that sometimes doctors are rather reluctant to actually tell a very wealthy patient the reality of the situation that they're in. They can actually, ironically, be rather hands-off about giving that message, so it doesn't necessarily go that great wealth goes with great doctoring.
0: Well, we'll come to the dramatic impact that doctoring can have for the worst later, but Norman, let's talk about some of the common stuff like lifestyle.
1: Yeah, and one of the early banner holders for lifestyle diseases was Henry VIII.
0: (laughs) Yes, Well, Henry VIII lived in a different
2: time. First of all, people ate a lot more at that time. I mean, 16 courses at dinner would not have been unusual. So Henry, as he aged, became obese. He was enormous. And he also probably had a form of diabetes. We know that he went to the toilet quite a lot because that's very well documented in the court records. He had an unquenchable thirst. And these are all signs of diabetes. So Henry's body, as it were, took quite a toll. He also had a number of jousting accidents. And unfortunately, the medical thinking at that time was that you should leave the wound open. Uh, Better out than in was the medical thinking. And particularly on his legs, he had incredible circulation problems. Very, very painful and very embarrassing for him. The wounds would leak with pus. And he spent more actually in one year on perfume to actually disguise the smell of his own body from these open wounds. But perhaps with Henry VIII, the biggest issue really for him was psychological. He was a man who bordered on paranoia as he aged. He became very short-tempered, be fair to say almost quite bitter. And he, as many people are very familiar with, of course, he had six wives. He was desperate for a living male heir. But he was someone who found the whole nature of kingship quite difficult in terms of his mental well-being. He tended to react as though there were always enemies around him, and that can breed paranoia. It was a very difficult character, mercurial sort of man. He was a very interesting man in the fact that he was very well-educated. He was a humanist scholar, very, very interested in learning. He had concerns about, at that time, the conduct of the established church, which then was the Roman Catholic Church, and the way that it was gaining money from, for example, indulgences, and the way that the church was making money out of sin, as he would have seen it. So he had intellectual concerns about that, but he also gained the revenues, of course, of the dissolution of the monasteries. He wanted to drive forward a reformation. He was a great change maker. The scale of what he attempted was huge and once set in motion very difficult then for him to kind of control all of the elements of it and that's why we have an early reformation a reformation and then a counter-reformation actually later in the tudor period and the fact that we go through these phases tells you just how seismic that change was and as monarch that was very difficult for him to control and it's at those moments that you see his stress
0: I do hope my toilet habits aren't the subject of court documents after I die, (laughs) Norman. But Elizabeth Hurran says that the story about lifestyle and the royal family isn't all bad.
2: I'd say certain generations of the family have been very good at keeping fit, actually. Her Majesty the Queen, who's just died, as we all know, she had a love of horse racing. She loved to ride her horses. She rode, actually, into her 90s. She was a great walker, very fond of her dogs. You know, so they do keep fit quite a lot. They like fresh, open air. And this is very good for your lifestyle, for your longevity, actually. The Queen is very famous for saying that there's no such thing as
0: bad weather, there's only inappropriate clothing. So, Norman, we're living through a pandemic at the moment, I don't know if you've noticed, and obviously we live at a time of a lot of medical advancements, but the royals throughout history surely wouldn't have escaped infectious diseases either.
1: That's true. In fact, infectious diseases have ravaged the royal family for centuries.
0: Yes, they did. In fact, Henry came to the throne
2: because his brother Arthur was Prince of Wales and he died of an early form, early modern form of what's known as a sweating sickness. And suddenly Henry is actually thrust into the role then of Prince of Wales, and by 1509 he's crowned king. So Henry was never supposed to come to the throne, it was entirely infectious disease that took his elder brother away. So in that sense, you know, a kingship is no guarantee. Part of Henry's paranoia actually was that he was very, very frightened actually of catching infectious diseases. He was famous for when plague or summer fevers came to any of the palaces, he would be off. (laughs) He was away. He would simply leave and he wouldn't appear until the disease pattern had passed. And really that arises from his brother dying. And of course, until he gets an heir, a living male heir, he can't afford to actually himself become very ill. And, of course, life expectancy then is lower. He would have expected to live to 45, 50 at the most. So as he ages, he becomes more
0: and more and more anxious. One of the kings that we often talk about when we're coming to diseases in royal families is George Third, who I realise I know mostly from Hamilton. He's the, he's the guy who was the king when That's the right. War of Independence happened.
1: He was outside the room. <laughs> George III came to the throne in 1732, his reign ended in 1820, and quite a lot happened in his room. The British Empire expanded, they defeated Napoleon, but they also lost the American colonies in the War of Independence, as anyone who's been to see Hamilton will know. <laughs> and that's been partly put down to his mysterious illness, which in fact in the end resulted in his son taking over power in his later years as regent. Martin Warren is professor of biochemistry at the University of
0: Kent. Hang on, wait, biochemistry in King George III? Why?
3: I've been interested in the madness of King George because part of my scientific research was based on what are known as the pigments of life. These are the major biomolecules that give colour. Things like, you know, why grass is green, why blood is red.
0: So we've got a historian of the body and now we have a biochemist of colours. Yeah,
1: we do. And why blood is red is probably the key to the madness of King George.
3: The idea that he was a mad king comes from his major bout of illness, which was recorded during the Regency crisis. And for the last 10 years of his life, he seems to have suffered with some form of dementia, so he was kept away. But apart from that, it's likely that his total illness was perhaps only six months, maybe nine months in duration. And the rest of the time, he seems to have been reasonably well. So the idea that he was an ill king is incorrect. In general, he had good health. It's just that there were four or five bouts where he he seemed to lose his mind. And that, of course, is what attracted attention after the king's death, as they tried to understand what perhaps gave rise to those bouts of mental incapacity.
0: The cause, we don't know it for sure, do we?
1: No, it's not a settled matter. And some experts believe that George III had bipolar disorder and we still had duels. There'd be duels over this (laughs) because people feel very strongly about it. Martin Warren has spent years trying to pin down definitively that it was a fairly rare blood disease called porphyria, which brings us back to why the blood is red. It's red because hemoglobin, which carries oxygen, has at its centre a red molecule, heme. Porphyria is where heme isn't made properly or inefficiently, I should say, and the toxic raw materials for heme back up as intermediates in the blood. The symptoms are quite varied, which also makes it quite difficult to
3: diagnose. They vary from neurological symptoms, where people suffer with peripheral neuropathy. And what I mean by that is that, is, is that they their muscles feel rather weak and limp, and their limbs feel rather limp. They can have trouble with digestion because their autonomic nervous system has been inhibited and it can manifest in a more severe case with a mental impairment. In other words, they can appear to have lost their mind. They can also suffer with sun sensitivity. It can be very difficult for them to go out in the sun because the sunlight reacts with some of these intermediates and cause blistering of the skin. So they become quite photophobic and they have to remain indoors. Or it can be a combination of both of those effects but one of the telltale symptoms is the excretion of those intermediates in the urine. And the urine can appear from a sort of light orange through to quite a, a very dark red, almost purple-black in appearance. But if you expose it to ultraviolet light, these intermediates are very fluorescent. And so it'll, it'll give off quite a strong pink
1: glow.
0: So where did the theory that it could be porphyria come from?
1: Well, it came from various sources, but Really, it was nailed, at least provisionally nailed, by two psychiatrists, mother and son team, who were presumably looking for a psychiatric diagnosis. They studied George III and felt that it was the most realistic explanation.
3: I wondered whether it would be possible to do a sort of retrospective investigation of the king's condition by trying to do some kind of genetic analysis. So could we find some genetic material from George or from a relative of George who had similar conditions and whether we could identify a change in one of those genes that's associated with porphyria.
0: Can't be as easy as it sounds.
1: No, it's not. But serendipity came Martin Warren's way when he read a letter to the Guardian from an historian who reckoned he'd found a solid link. He said, Alan Bennett
3: doesn't need to worry about whether it's Porphyria or not. He said, I'm convinced because I've been looking at the letters of Kaiser Bill, bill i the second, I've been looking at the letters of his sister, who was a granddaughter of Queen Victoria, and in her letters, and she's writing to her mother and also to her only daughter, Theodora, and she's describing all of these symptoms associated with Porphyria. So I'm convinced that Porphyria has been passed on through this line through Wilhelm's sister, Princess Charlotte, and to her
1: daughter, Theodora. Alan Bennett? So Alan Bennett's a famous British playwright and he wrote the play, The Madness of King George. And in the, at the end of the play, he comments to the play that there was still some debate around Porphyria and this historian's letter was a response to Alan Bennett saying, I've got it taped.
0: OK, so a play and some letters don't feel like really solid evidence to me.
1: That's right. And the key thing would be to get tissue to do some sampling. We did inquire about whether it was possible to get any of
3: George's herb, but that, that completely ruled out. But we knew where Princess Charlotte was buried, and we knew where Theodora was buried. One was in Germany, one was in Poland. And amazingly, we got permission from the authorities in Germany and in Poland so that we could acquire some bone material from both of the graves.
1: So they were exhumed?
3: yes so we ended up with two bone samples and we did some dna extraction and dna analysis on on that we find one variation and it's not a convincing variation but it was associated with the gene that's linked with variegate porphyria and we find it both in the mother and the daughter but it's the kind of mutation because it's not directly in the gene it's in one of the introns It's really one of those mutations that you really need to have a living family member to see what effect that that change has on the activity of that particular enzyme. So that was sort of a little bit frustrating,
0: Frustrating. So much work and so little payoff.
1: Yeah, but, but I just remember that finding of this curious mutation, because we'll come back to it in another disease in Queen Victoria's lineage.
0: Edge of my seat, Norman. Yeah,
1: yeah, I'm sure you are. Anyway, serendipity came to Martin Warren's aid again when a close relative of Queen Elizabeth II, Prince William of Gloucester, was diagnosed with porphyria by British and Japanese doctors.
0: I love what you're doing here, but it's still not proof that George III had it.
1: No, oh, you're yes, <laughs> so <single.
0: laughs>
1: No, but they did wonder why, let's assume that it was porphyria, why did the king's because porphy- this is one of the reasons why people would say it wasn't porphyria, why did the king's porphyria attacks last longer than such attacks usually do? And they wondered whether there was anything that his doctors did to him.
3: So one of the things we wondered about was whether the medication that, that they were giving the king was the cause of the length of his illness. So we, we, we had a look, and of course, the king's physicians during his illness they saw him twice a day and they kept a lot of notes. When these notes are held in various places, there's some of them are in Windsor Castle, some of them are in Lambeth Palace.
1: And from the notes, they found that the king's doctors had given him emetics, drugs to make him sick, in the hope of relieving his abdominal pain. Because it typical with porphyria, I'm pushing the porphyria line. <laughs> George III got abdominal pain, was quite sick before he actually exhibited his mental symptoms, his psychological symptoms. Now, such drugs in those days contained arsenic.
0: Ah, yes, that noted health-giving molecule. <laughs> That's right. It
1: can kill you, but in tiny doses. But, you know, how do you prove this? Well, yet more serendipity. A museum in London contacted Martin Warren. and They said, we've got this
3: locket of hair on display from George III. Um, <laughs> you know, we read your study on, on the madness of King George. And would this be of help?
0: Would it? Would it be of help,
1: you'd, th- you'd think so, because they, they got a couple of strands of the hair and put it through high-tech analysis, including looking for heavy metals. And when they went along
3: the hair strand, it was they could detect a little bit of excess lead and mercury, it was, it was nothing perhaps unusual for the, the time. But what was striking was the level of arsenic it was consistent that the medication that was being given to the king would have prolonged his porphyric attacks because it's known that arsenic also has this effect on heme synthesis that it inhibits it further.
0: So it wasn't George III's fault, it was the doctors that lost the American colonies?
3: Yes, absolutely. It is, of course, much more complex than that. And I get told off for trying to reduce it to this kind of
1: level. Probably by historians like Elizabeth Huron, who's a bit more cautious.
2: It's very difficult to do retrospective diagnosis. That's a dangerous thing to sort of engage in, actually, because, as I've said, disease patterns were different in the past and our understanding of them were. That said, there's no doubt that he suffered from very severe mental health episodes. The degree to which those contributed to the loss of the American colonies is, um, well, that's quite a big area of historical debate. I guess the question we should really be asking ourselves is why did those around him who knew he was like this not manage the situation better? Because one of the questions that all courtiers have to ask is, is the monarch fit to rule? And if they're not, and they need to take time out, then what are you going to do about that? And who's actually going to manage? And of course, what we have in Britain is the system of councillors of state. And these have always existed, and they continue to exist, actually. And usually, it's the first... Five or six people who are in the line of succession. So for historians, really, I guess the big question is, what was the opinion of the Council of Soviet State? What was the opinion of the courtiers around the governments of the day? Why weren't they managing this situation better than it was? But I don't think it would be fair to land it all at his particular feet. There are always checks and balances in this system of government. And we can see those happening right now, actually. You know, that's part of the continuity of monarchy.
0: So what about the probably the most famous royal disease would be haemophilia?
1: Yes. Just a moment to explain what haemophilia is. Essentially, you need factors in your blood to make your blood clot. Two of those factors are called factor eight and factor nine. The commonest form of haemophilia is factor eight. Factor nine causes something called Christmas disease. Now, Queen Victoria carried the haemophilia gene she passed it to the spanish german and russian royal families through some of her nine children but the most impact was probably in russia where the Tsar nicholas and alexandra who was the descendant of victoria and would have presumably got the gene from prince alice victoria prince alice to alexandra and she passed it because it's only boys who get haemophilia it was carried on the x chromosome to Alexei, the heir to the Romanov royal throne. He bled from very early on in his life, and they kept it a secret. But in 1914, the secret was out. Alexander brought in the monk, the so-called mad monk Rasputin. Russian-American geneticist Evgeny Rogaev of the University of Massachusetts was called in by the Russians when they found the remains of Tsar Nicholas and his family in a mine shaft, And he identified the remains, but also looked for one of the two hemophilia genes.
4: And we developed some methodology that allowed to recover very, very small DNA fragments and to search for mutations in these fragments. And we were targeting specifically the gene for factor VIII. We tried to use originally the samples from Alexandra the mother of Prince Alexei, so the Impress Alexandra, and why? Uh, because her bone samples were relatively good quality. We had a good quality DNA from these samples, and we suggested that we can see two variants. If we identify a mutation, we would see two variants. One with mutation, the gene with mutation, and one is wild type because the female has, has a 2X chromosome. One should be with mutation in the gene, and another is just normal. And again, we found no any mutation in the gene for hemophilia for, for the factor eight. Uh, it was quite disappointing at that time, but we decided, okay, let us do the final step. Let us look at the gene for factor nine. And again, when we look at the encoding part of the genes, we found no any mutation. Uh, sometimes it's not easy to interpret. For example, we can expect maybe some contamination, this and that. We made multiple control, excluded all potential problems. And fortunately, when we looked more carefully on this gene, we found that there is some indeed variation, mutation, but in non-coding region of the gene, we made conclusion that we have a deal with severe form of hemophilia B.
0: So this is the gene story you mentioned before. I think we might need a bit of a biology lesson
1: to make sense of it. Okay, so in the run of DNA, you have genes which code for proteins, in this case, factor nine. But in amongst the gene and between genes, there is what used to be called junk DNA, but it's DNA that doesn't hold the code for the protein. And for many years, people thought this was just DNA that didn't do anything because it's in the non-coding region. What they did was, so they thought, well, this they haven't found the, the mutation. But what they then did was they took it out, they cloned the gene, including the non-coding part, and they put it back into a mammalian cell culture or a mammalian cell model. And they found that, in fact, they created Christmas disease, which showed that you could get factor nine problems in the non-coding part of the gene. So, in other words, they proved that the mutation that they'd found in the mineshaft was in fact the cause of hemophilia.
0: And this so-called junk DNA found in a mineshaft had big effects for Russia. It did. Huge, actually. First of all, I think it would be fair
2: to say they became quite superstitious about it. I'm sure listeners are very familiar with the story of Rasputin, who was brought in and uh, appeared to be a form of healer. And a lot of faith was placed in him because he seemed to be able to calm the heir to the throne. And it was reported, whether it was actually so or not, we don't know. But it was reported that the bleeding tended to stop when Rasputin was around. But the problem with that was then that presented problems for the family in terms of publicity. People became very critical of the Tsarina. Why couldn't she have a living, healthy male heir? And it's indicative, really, of the pressure there have always been on women who marry into the family, actually, to have healthy, living children. I don't think
0: people often appreciate just how much pressure there can be. But there's a religious sting in this tale, which is fascinating.
1: Yeah, here's Evgeny Rogaev again on that point.
4: There are so many uh, ethical issues because these remains were canonised and they... were recognized by Russian Orthodox Church as a holy remains, but the family was canonized, but the church has not yet accepted the remains and the results. First of all, they, they have not officially accepted yet the results of identification of these remains. And therefore, they did not, they cannot at this moment yet recognize these remains as holy remains.
1: Which allowed them to actually do the study. But it all begs the question of where Victoria got the haemophilia of the factor nine gene from. We all know that Queen Victoria
3: was a carrier of haemophilia and passed it on into the Roman often, into the Spanish royal family, clearly with disastrous consequences. But where did she get it from? Because there's no evidence of... Haemophilia prior to Queen Victoria. And that gives you three options. Either her father wasn't her father, but it would have to have been a male haemophiliac, which is incredibly unlikely. She was a spontaneous mutation, which is possible, or she was a changeling.
1: A changeling?
0: A changeling. Is this a fairy tale, Norman?
1: So that's right. So the idea here is that um, her father, who was elderly by that time, and there was a race to produce an heir to the throne because the king did not have an heir and Princess Charlotte died young. And, you know, did did Victoria's father fail to produce an offspring and took another child and pretended that it was his own? Most people discount that, but it's a nice story. I'm
0: shook. I have my mouth open right now.
1: (laughs) And the most likely explanation, in fact, is that it was a spontaneous mutation, which in fact does happen with haemophilia. Anyway... Tegan, to tie all this together, this amazing story of royal deaths, which we only just scratched the surface of, I did ask Professor Elizabeth Huron, which in her view were the most significant deaths.
2: I mean, Henry VIII's death was complicated because he didn't leave really a very satisfactory will. And so we saw then Edward VI, his son, inheriting. But then there was a the whole question of he was too young and what was the power that were going to be placed in his councillors of state. Then he dies himself very young. And then Mary comes to the throne and she wants to reverse the Reformation for us to become, as it were, a Catholic nation again. And she dies and when we have the Protestant settlement under Elizabeth. But that doesn't go very well either at first. People forget that when she ascended the throne, you know, within a year of her ascending the throne, she had the whole of the Catholic North in rebellion against her. At one point, the Pope in 1570 actually, actually excommunicated her and then eventually she becomes this long-lived monarch. So that was a very great period of turmoil. It was a period in which, if you like, the way that church and state formed was very much formed in that period. But it was by no means certain through this turmoil. So that was one particular period. Another period I think really would have been after Queen Victoria died. It really did feel like the end of an era. We were beginning the modern era. You know, would monarchy survive into the modern era? Would Edward VII, who had a mixed reputation as Prince of Wales, would he be a good Prince of Wales? He proved to be, and he proved to be incredibly popular. But that was you know, also a very, very big time of, of change in Britain as a society. What's happened really in the 20th century is, is that we've had three monarchs who've been very stable, uh, George V, very conservative, George VI who took us through the Second World War, the Queen's father and the abdication crisis and then Her Majesty the Queen who's exemplified duty and service through this extraordinary long reign. So we've had three in a row and we've been very lucky actually in that sense.
1: Professor Elizabeth Huron, Professor of History at the University of Leicester and Professor of History of the Body. We also heard from Martin Warren, who is Professor of Biochemistry at the University of Kent, Professor Evgeny Rogaev, who is a geneticist at the University of Massachusetts Worcester in the United States, and it was all produced by Shelby Trainer.
0: And that's it for now, but next week, we'll look out, it's our new season and there'll be a whole bunch of interesting and informative health topics from then.
1: You're so confident, Tegan.
0: How can I be anything but confident about next year of The Health Report, Norman? But here's the news. We're going to be on at a new time, 6pm instead of 5.30. Do
1: not miss it. Don't miss it. There'll be Drive, there'll be PM, then there'll be us at 6 o'clock. See you then. See you then.
3: You've been listening to an ABC podcast.